This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. All right, so y'all know that I love basketball a lot, and I I love this guy, um, but I hated him when he was in Indiana because I hated Indiana um, for a lot of reasons, mostly because of Reggie, mostly because of Reggie. Uh, and then, and then you, you, you went to another team, which I thought was stacked. And I was like, do they need David West and his good rebounded ass self? Cause you always going up against LeBron. Why did you ever play with LeBron? I just wanted that. But now you're out there doing something that I think is really important. Let me welcome you to the show. So you can explain to us where you stand on all of this. Should the NBA be playing in, in Florida? All of that. Drew McCaskill is here. Let me welcome the one and only David West. Welcome, sir. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming through. Nice to meet you, too. Thank nice you. to meet you. You know, I, 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 you've always kind of been a little outspoken. I don't know whether that's the Virgo in you. But I, I've noticed Maybe. like you, you, you were a dude that never took any guff off of anybody. And right. even before LeBron and them with the, you know, I can't breathe and stand up for what's right, you always were always on the right side. What do you attribute that to, David? Well, uh, I'm going to be honest with you. I grew up in Teaneck, New Jersey, uh, right outside of the city. And uh, when I was eight years old, uh, cops killed Philip Pinnell. Uh, Gary Spass shot Philip Pinnell in the back. I was eight years old. That was literally up the street from my house on my block. And uh, I've been awake ever since. Uh, that was, you know, I, I, we, I, I never forget the next two days. Uh, you know, all, everybody showed up. There was protests. People were marching. Stuff going on at night. Uh, my mom took us into the city one night because they said it was just going to get crazy in Teaneck. Uh, we went through the whole process. I was eight years old, right? We went through the, you know, the forensic stuff. Uh, he All the lies. He was a bad kid. We knew Philip. used to walk past my house almost every day. Um, so I got exposed to it then. You know, it was a guy who, um, you know, once I felt that as a young kid, I just stayed with it. Um, I fell in love with basketball. Basketball took me far beyond where I ever thought I would go. Um, and I was able to, to ride it as long as I felt possible, but I never lost a sense of um, purpose, never lost a sense of who I, who I was uh, throughout the whole journey. Tell me so about those folk. Tell me about those folk that raised you in Teaneck. Cause uh, you know, you could be eight and not be woke. You know, you could be eight and, right. and not, not be right. out there, not understand. Something was going right. on in that household that gave you the foundation to be able to say, something's wrong with this young man being killed by these police. Something is wrong here. Yeah. This doesn't feel right. And you're only eight years old. Right. Yeah, my dad, my dad and my mom, my dad had us right out there. We were marching, holding our little signs and stuff. Um, my dad was, you know, older. My dad had him. He was 42 years old. He was born in 1938. So he, he grew up in North Carolina. Uh, in Mount Olive and between Mount Olive and New Bern. So he came up as a teenager doing sit-ins and things like that. Uh, I had an uncle who was radicalized and, um, you know, kind of went that route. Uh, So my father always kept sort of this level of consciousness. He was also very religious. Uh, He was a Christian, grew up in the backwoods. My grandfather was a fire and brimstone preacher, uh, but my grandfather was also a segregationist. He didn't believe that, um, you know, black and white people should, coalesce um he always felt like as long as black people lived amongst themselves they were doing fine he had a farm he built a massive grave for our for our family uh still room in there uh it's crazy but i just i just had a different background different upbringing that's a lot different than my my peers and um i think at times it came through 
Uh, it was harder for me at times to connect with my peers. Uh, I tell people all the time, my, my dad was born in 1938. Uh, my mom was born in 1944. My grandmother, my oldest grandmother, who I had for 18 years of my life, was born in 1905. My grandfather was born in 1911. So the stories that they told me and the things that they sort of put in me at an early age was way different than what some of my friends were getting whose parents didn't have this kind of background. Um, and so when Philip was killed, we were just, you know, it was just something that my mom started having the talks to with us about, you know, going out, being conscious, right. Don't walk away from me in the store. All of these types of things became very real. Uh, my dad, all the things that my dad had been kind of building up for us, came to light. See, I told you this is how they're going to treat you in the street. This is why you can't do A, B, C, D, and E. Um, my father was a, uh, uh, my mother would tell us, because my mother grew up in Harlem. Uh, so my mother would tell us, you know, of the times in Harlem where, you know, again, she grew up in the segregated community, black community that was thriving and providing things for themselves. My father grew up in a segregated community. My father never went to integrated schools. Never. I went to his 56th high school graduation or something of reunion. And it was amazing talking to all these folks who were still with us about, you know, the first 20, 22 years of their life, they never lived outside of their own community. So all of that went into sort of, you know, who I am and who I was as a young person. And my parents never let me sort of forget the connection that we have, you know, to the, to this larger community as a whole. So how did you navigate? Because when I when I think I covered sports for a, a number of years, and when I go into those 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 institutions, those college institutions, and then the NBA, they're institutions sure. that are that are framed a certain way. And even though a lot of y'all make millions of dollars, it it feels very much like a plantation hierarchy. So how did sure. David West come into uh, you know your your condition? to, you know, to, to, to conduct yourself a certain way, you know, uh, the, the, all of the rules and regulations around conduct, you know, when, when Allen mm-hmm. Iverson came in with the braids and all of that in the tattoos, right. Right. now they got a dress code. You're going to tell grown people how to dress. Right. T- talk about that a little bit and how you, cause you, again, I don't know why I knew this about you, but it just bled through that you weren't about the, the nonsense. Right. Right. So I, I always looked at it like this. So when we were young, we always, whether it was February or sometime during the year, we always had to watch eyes on the prize, right? And I remember seeing the different layers of black people in that, you know, that epilogue of us, right? Where you have like the young people in the street who are fighting. You've got the men in the street, women in the street who are fighting and protesting. Then you've got this other segment uh, of folks that were, sort of working like Dr. King was, like Malcolm was, with suit and ties on. Um, and I've always found, like, for most of us, we're going to be in between there. Like, some of us are going to be, are called to be foot soldiers, be on the ground, right, right in front of your face. Some of us are called to be that intellectual leadership class. But the bulk of us, are fighting, are saying, we got to fight where we are. We got to know our strengths and know our weaknesses. So my father and my mother, uh, my mentors, made sure I was always clear. And I was always on the fence, like, not to go too much into the sports, not to give up too much of myself in sports. 
And then when I got to the professional level and realized that everything we had been told about protecting your image and protecting your brand was like a lie and that if you're good enough and if you're proficient enough uh, and if you articulate yourself in a way that your points are clear, it really is of no consequence. So I think that's what's happened not only with me, but with this, this, this sort of new era where guys are a little bit more comfortable speaking and you realize it's like, we have a right to say what we want to say, particularly if we're speaking in a responsible manner. And I know, you know, people have gotten on me for saying this in the past, but like it was probably like my second or third year in the NBA. And I remember it's like, yo, like we had moved out of like real hip hop in my, in my mind. Like we came out of the nineties and then all of a sudden in the early two thousands, it's like Laffy Taffy and the thong song. And I'm like, yo, where is music going? But then I sat up one day and I'm like, why should I be quiet? And they allow this mess on the radio. Like you, you allowing these people a platform to say whatever the hell they want to say. If I'm at, I'm on my platform. And again, I was never a superstar in the NBA. I never commanded the, the bright lights. You were two-time all-star, though, myself. David West. Two-time all-star. Right, but there's, I mean, there's levels to it. I mean, I've never been, I've never been blind to that. Like LeBron is who he is. These other guys with these massive platforms are who they are. But that still doesn't mean that I can't speak. I can't say what needs to be said. I listen to those guys and say, okay, they got the big platforms. The kids are going to listen to them. The major outlets are going to listen to them. But I'm going to add what I know folks need to hear at times. And that's how I used to – I would navigate. I I was a back – I was a behind-the-scenes warrior for the players. Um, you know, I let other, other guys go out there and get credit. But when it came down to the, to the nitty-gritty – um, you know, I'm helping guys make the tough decisions. I'm counseling guys, um, making sure that our pers- that our perspective is always heard. Um, you know, saying what has to be said, and sometimes it comes at a cost. You know, your your, your, your peers look at you like you know you, you get the label like oh there goes brother David, there goes the, the angry right. black dude. But you know, it's something that you know you end up dealing with, and you understand that the level of respect that you can command. You know, by being able to be a man of your word, you know, always voicing your opinion um, in a calculated and measured way. This podcast is brought to you by CarShield. With all the uncertainty in the world right now, everyone's top priority is safety. And protecting your vehicle is crucial, whether you're on the front lines as an essential worker out there protesting or even making trips to the store. We rely on our cars a lot. And I actually want us to get out of debt. So hold on to your cars, pay off your car. But that also means you're going to need extended coverage. So go to CarShield. CarShield takes the worry away from car repairs. They have affordable protection plans that can save you thousands for cover repair, including computers, GPS, electronics, and more. And the people at CarShield understand payment flexibility. That's a must. Monthly payments can be customized to your needs with rates as low as $99 a month. No long-term contracts or commitments. CarShield gives you options you others won't. CarShield gives you options others won't. You can get to choose your favorite mechanic or dealership to do the work, and CarShield takes care of the rest. They also offer complimentary 24-7 roadside assistance and a rental car while yours is being fixed. CarShield has helped more than a million customers, so you drive with confidence and peace of mind knowing you got covered by America's number one auto protection company. For as low as $99 a month, you can keep your family safe and save thousands for a cover repair. Give them a call, 800-CAR-6000, mention code KAREN, or visit carshield.com, use code KAREN, K-A-R-E-N, to save 10%. That's carshield.com, 
code Karen. A deductible may apply. I think has helped me navigate that space without having to. I don't sell out shit. Like I be, I look at people, no, you saying, listen to them all the time. Like yo, I'm the man. I ain't, ain't nobody ever asked me nothing crazy. When Donald Sterling lost his mind and got caught on tape, you know, basically articulating plantation politics, you know, about, you know, he don't want his lady being seen in public with black people. And he, you know, he pays money to black people and give them a good life. That's all that plantation stuff. There was no, no hesitation from my part to set the record straight. And then ultimately the NBA responded the right way by getting him out of the way. D. David West is here, 866-801-8255. Craig Hodges is part of our family, right? Craig Hodges got blacklisted in the, in the height mm-hmm. of his career, some would say, uh, couldn't get couldn't get in on a team. Abdur Ra- Ra- Ma- Mahmoud Raouf, um, we knew right. him as Chris right. Jackson, but, you know, mm-hmm. didn't want to do the national anthem, much like Kaepernick. Before Kaepernick, right. these brothers were doing that, lost their careers, basically. You came in a little bit, at, you know, as things were starting to soften up, you know. What's right. your perspective on that, those two brothers that I think, and there are probably more, you know, and then that wave that you came in on and then after you, LeBron and them. Where are we now with sports right. and, and freedom and, you know, how, how, how do you think it's permanent as well or will it go back? Yeah, well, I would say to answer the first part, so – you know, Craig Hodges, uh, Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, those, I've, I've spoken to both of those brothers. Those brothers are, you know, legends. For those of us that know, you know, what they did, the sacrifice that they made, um, the impossibility of their decisions, right? Like, I, I don't remember when um, Mahmoud was playing, but I think I might have been, yeah, it was like early you were, 90s. You were young. Think, right, 92, yes. 93, yeah. And that, and that, and that, uh, so we knew, in essence, what he was doing. Again, um, I think the response is something that we all expected. Um, and I remember even as my grandmother, my mother's mother, um, got older, um, she would talk about, like, you know what these folks are going to do. You know how they're going to respond. So that was one. That's the, the way I've always looked at it. Like, even with Kaepernick, right? They, we knew they were going to respond this way. We knew that um, that brother was not going to um, uh, maintain his opportunity. Whatever they try to do now to me, it's just all it's all garbage. Uh, you know, he is on the right side of history. There's no sort of corrective measure that the NFL will ever make that will put them on the right side of this this argument. So, um, what I've tried to do uh, again is 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 know who I am, right? Be who I am. Try to be that publicly, loudly. Um, you know, I've got a because of because I was so young, I got a bit of a different af- attitude toward protest themselves. Um, but I still appreciate the the symbol that Kaepernick is, that Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf was and is, and Craig Hodges ultimately was and is. And those, you know, those brothers are going to get their due. It's coming. They haven't got their just due yet, but it's coming. Um, and I think for the players now, you know, I'm, you know, I, I'm honest. I'll say this. I've always, I always felt like I was by myself during my time in the NBA. Um, you know, it was only a couple guys that I was able to really connect with on a deeper level. Um, and then, you know, when you hear people saying stuff about you and, you know, you know how people feel about you privately, maybe, you know, maybe they don't have the courage to say it publicly, but privately, you know how they feel about you. Um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a different space to be in. 
And, you know, when I came in the league in 2003, all we were hearing was, um, you know, you got to do this, you got to do that, you got to be aware of sponsors, you got to be careful of making yourself uh, uh, coming off a standoffish. You know, there were all these trigger things. And then for me, it was my second year in the league, you know, uh, the chairman of our, uh, of our organization, you know, basically walked in the meeting and told us that we all had to stand and put our hands over our heart during the national anthem. And I was like, man, you out your fucking mind, like straight like that in the meeting. I was like, I'm not doing it. Um, I gave my whole 15 minute spiel about the history of this country, why I'm not doing it. Um, and that was the end of the matter. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, it was never something that, that came, but I remember just feeling like, you know, I, I'm in here by myself. I'm not going to, you know, let anybody else speak for me. It's my, what I feel like I need to say. And I always felt like that in the league. But now it seems like there's more guys that are a little bit more aware. And they're a and lot younger. And it's profitable right? and they're a lot all younger. of a sudden. Look at that. Kaepernick's made no, more money really off the field. Come on. And <laughs> Drew McCaskill's here, 866-801-8255. David West, number 30, is with us. Drew, you had something you wanted to – I saw your finger. No, I was, I was, I was definitely going to say – um, you know, what you're talking about takes, you know, some self-awareness and it takes a lot of courage. You know what I mean? I, I'm always thinking about listeners who are thinking about how do I make an impact where I'm at right now, whether that's on a job or at work or in a community group or whatever. How do I stand up for, for what I believe in and what's right? I mean, talk a little bit about what you said before about doing so strategically. And I think that that's really, really important because it's not just about saying what you have to say, but really right. being intentional about when you say it, how you say it, who you say it to, right? And so can you talk a little bit about how you thought about that strategically too? Yeah. So uh, there's so there's these stigmas that come with athletes, right? Like can't you know we can't speak in front of cameras. We're terrible with the media uneducated, bad with money. We're all womanizers. Um, you know, they were, I've seen reporters basically making comments about how this guy's going to get arrested in two years. I think somebody made that comment about Cousins when he was drafted. On his draft day, I expect him to be arrested in two years. Like, people have these, these awful stereotypes about us, and I'm aware of those. Uh, and I'm not trying to play to anybody's sensibilities. What I'm trying to make sure people understand is that we are the most complex people on this planet. We have the oldest history, right? So you have more stories. We have more information informing us than other groups do. Whether or not we recognize it or not, our history is informing us in a way that allows us to continue to survive, continue to thrive, to continue to be the leaders of culture and, and, you know, trends and all that stuff. It's because of our history, right? And our history is informing the stuff with us. So having that consciousness and then knowing, like, certain spaces haven't been open to us, certain platforms haven't been available to us, uh, certain opportunities haven't been in front of us. And I've always been somebody that if that opportunity presents itself, I want to be able to step into it and then represent who I am and what I believe at the highest level. So it's not about, you know, I always tell people, like, people always ask me, oh, D, how do you, how do you do it? And I'm like, man, I'm a, I'm a black person. I'm an African-American person. I have an African heritage 
because of the history of enslavement in this country. There's nothing wrong with knowing that story. So many of us are just, we're just uncomfortable with knowing more about our greater story. And I've never been ashamed of that. So I don't have to walk around, you know, with the kente on or a dashiki or anything. It's literally, if, you, if we talk, you'll understand my Africanness coming through. You'll understand the pride that I have in my heritage coming through the way that I represent myself and I represent my, the, my name, I represent my family. Like, that's what, for me, has always been about. So I don't, people look at me and, like, I, 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 people size me up and try to say, hey, man, you, and I'm like, bro, what do you want to know? What's the conversation we need to have, right? Because it's like, if you're, you can wear all the stuff you want to, but you could, you could still be, you know, championing white supremacy. You know, that's you right. know, but if you are who you are, and you're you're resolute in that, and I I'm just thankful that I was able to get there at a pretty young age. Um, you know, understand I, I you know again I grew up in Teaneck, New Jersey, but my mother we would be in Bushwick, New York every weekend from the time I was zero till I was 13 or 14 years old. We went to Pilgrim Church in Bushwick, and it was like. You know, having that experience of like a proud, big black Pentecostal church, and getting that sort of structure every uh, every Sunday, every weekend, right? This is where I like affirmed my love for black women. Like, why would I choose to marry somebody that's not a black woman? Like, all I saw was beautiful black women. I remember Salt and Pepper were going to our church at one time, and we little boys, we would chase Spinderella to her car. We'd walk her to her car every <laughs> Sunday. She had this dope Jetta. Y'all remember when Jettas was like the thing? She had this super dope Jetta, and us little boys from the church would just walk, make sure she got to her car safe, and then we waved. But, like, it's like that whole experience I'm proud of. Like, and I'm not, you know, I, it's, it's informed me, and I feel like it's connected me to that greater story that we have as people, right? And we continue to write write the story, but that's how I feel like we have to be. We've got to be able to embrace what we are, not be ashamed of it, not be embarrassed of it. We've had down moments, but we've had a great illustrious history, and that's what informs me. That's what you know keeps me going, has kept me positive, uh, it's kept me sort of focused on the right thing. I want to ask you about this college league that you're putting together. Um, I think Absolutely. it's powerful. I've been talking on these airwaves. I said if every top black athlete went to an HBCU. That was my dream five years ago. They just went the way the Fab Five went to Michigan, go to Morehouse or go to Howard or go to, you know, Clafton, wherever, Claflin, Virginia Union. I think that's where uh, Oakley went. You Just go with a purpose, top five, that instantly will put that, because there's billions of dollars, billions of dollars that the NCAA has been uh, pilfering on our town. I mean, I'm going to call it pilfering because they haven't given these kids anything back. 